Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Nedarim, daf nun, page 50. Well, we have a lot of amazing biographical information uh, about our time in Amorayim on today's daf. Anne and I are going to read sort of the most uh, famous ones, Rabbi Akiva and uh, Rabbi Yoshua. Uh, I do just want to point out that there is this very interesting story about Rabbi Yehuda, um, and how poor he was. It's really on the bottom of yesterday's dab and goes into today's dab um, and how he, you know, would share a robe with his wife because they basically just didn't have enough. Um, so just pay attention to that. That's one very, very famous story. Uh, but now we get into some of the Rabbi Akiva stories here. And the way that w- the Gemara segues into this is because they spoke about Rabbi Yehuda's poverty and now they're going to speak about Rabbi Akiva's poverty, and ultimately Rabbi Akiva's great wealth. And the Gemara begins as follows. Rabbi Akiva itkadashed le birte devar kalva savua. So the daughter of Rabbi Akiva is engaged to, right, they do Kedushin to Rabbi Akiva. Shema bar kalva shavua. So bar kalva shavua hears about this. And basically he throws her out of the house, okay? Now, again, we've seen some of these stories about Rabbi Akiva and found and how he found uh, his wife. Uh, we saw one on in Ketubot, uh on Daf um, Sadi Bet Amud Bet, um, and that you know his daughter El noticed him. And this is kind of more information filling out that whole story, right? So here they become engaged, and what does he do? Kicks, you know, he hears about this. Supposedly throws her out of the house, and then Adrahanami right? And so. Uh, the the exactly what we're talking about is the topic of our masachet. He makes a vow prohibiting her to benefit from any of his possessions. Remember, he's a very wealthy man. Azla nasiva besitva. So she goes and she still gets married to Rabbi Akiva in the winter. Havaganu tivna. Because they were so poor, they basically sleep in a straw shed, meaning they don't have any pillows or mattresses. Right, they're sleeping on straw. Rabbi Akiva would then pull the hair, the straw from her hair, right? So this is, it, there's something very like romantic and affectionate in a, of Rabbi Akiva's depiction of the straw from his wife's hair that we don't normally see how the Tanaim are described in this way. Amar Lani says to her, If I had the means, I would put on your head a Jerusalem of gold, right? And we've seen in other, uh, you know, this was this, you know, type of piece of jewelry uh, that would be uh, worn. It's referred to specifically in Masachat Shabbat. Um, but the idea is, is she's wearing straw instead of wearing this Jerusalem of gold. Ata Eliyahu. So Eliyahu Hanabi comes. Lahon Ke'ensha. And comes to them disguised as a person. The Kakari Ababa, and he calls out to them from at the door. Amr Luhu, and Eliyahu says to them, Havali Porta de Tivna, please give me a little bit of straw. Right? And my he says, My wife gave birth, and I don't have anything on which for her to lay down. I also find what's interesting about this story is I think it shows that there were people living in a lot of extreme poverty, right? And what Eliyahu pretending to be a poor person is describing is even wor- worse, more poverty than what Rabbi Akiva and his wife were in. Amar la Rabbi Akiva, 
says to his wife, See, here's a person who even has less than us. He doesn't even have straw. So she says to him, Go, you should go learn. Now, again, we see many of these stories. The one that we saw in Ketubah was, remember that he was not with her for 12 years. And as he was coming back, you know, she heard people talking uh, about, she was talking to other people about him. And basically, you know, they were saying, were you deserted? And she said, no, he's learning. And I'd be happy for him to do it again and desert me again. Um, and so again, we see this theme, you know, that, and remember, sorry, in, in that story, he says that basically all of his Torah is her Torah. So again, we see here sort of this encouragement that she has for him to go learn. Azil Tarte Sarishin so Rabbi Akiva goes again for, so again, we see this number of 12 years, studying with both Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua. Now remember, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua are his teachers. Rabbi Eliezer is the school of Shammai. Rabbi Yeshua is the school of Hillel. And at the end of 12 years, right? He's coming home. And he hears from behind, from behind his house, that a wicked person, that's how the person is described, is saying, your father did the right thing, right? Basically, by taking this nether, because your husband is not your equal. Presumably, what this means is she was of a higher socioeconomic class than he was. And also, he left you as a widow, basically, for all these years. She says, if he would listen to me, he should remain in the academy for another 12 years. So again, it's a different version of this story, right? Where again, she says, he should leave me for 12 years. So Rabbi Akiva says to himself, since she gave me permission, I'll go back. So he goes back. Remember, he never even saw her at this point. Uh, so again, you know, he leaves her for another 12 years. Okay, then the Gemara goes on to say, So he comes back. So this is after 24 years. And now he comes back with 24,000 pairs of students. Okay. Uh, he has uh, 12,000 pairs of students. So just know that that's a little bit of a difference. Everybody goes out to Graham. And his wife also goes out to greet him. And again, that wicked person says to her, where are you going? In other words, she obviously looked disheveled. That's what the commentators explain. You know, she, she looks poor. She says to him, a righteous one knows his animal's soul. Now, this is a passage from Mishle, chapter 12, verse 10, right? And what she means here is that Rabbi Akiva would understand how she sacrificed her wealth, what she suffered for him, and he's not going to care what she looks like, that she looks poor. So she comes, right, and is seen by Rabbi Akiva, but the rabbis were pushing her away, meaning his students, right? And Rabbi Akiva said to them, right? That Torah is mine. And the Torah that is yours is really hers. So again, the, I encourage everybody to go look at the story in Ketubah. 
and 62B, because again, it's a parallel story. It's told a little bit differently here. We don't have time in this podcast to go through exactly why some of those differences may exist, but it's, it's not so common that the Gemara tells the same story uh, or a version of the same story. So that's also like interesting, just from a literary point of view about the Gemara, that this story seems to get to appear twice. I, I think in both Masechtot, it has its own um, purpose, right? In Ketubot, it's there because it's dealing with some of the issues around a husband and a, and a wife, uh, a husband not being around for his wife. Here, it begins because of this issue about a neder. So it, it sort of fits into the Masechet and each version sort of fits into the Masechet. All right, then we conclusion of the story. And then this is going to get into how Rabbi Akiva became wealthy. Shema Bar Kalva Savua, right? So his father-in-law hears about all of this. Now, some of the commentators say it's that it's not clear if he heard, he knew there was a great Talmud Chacham in town. Is Rabbi Akiva to solve his halachic issue, not knowing that it's Rabbi Akiva's son-in-law, or is it that he goes to other Chachamim to solve his problem, right? That he has this nether that his daughter cannot benefit from any of his possessions. So he comes and he petitions to be released from his vow. And eventually he's released. And Rabbi Akiva is permitted to benefit basically from any of his uh, possessions. But part of what this is talking about is that finally he recognizes who Rabbi Akiva is. Um, and uh, and the idea is, is that maybe he gave him some of his wealth. As the Gemara continues to say, Minshi Mile. Uh, there are six sources from which Rabbi Akiva became wealthy. Min from his father-in-law, min from the head of the heart on on a ship, right? So the, every ship would sort of have this uh, wooden bow uh, on it, um, and this was sort of a, 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 some kind of charm that apparently, like the crew would think, would bring them good luck. Um, and, um, it could also be filled with, it could be filled with gold. So he somehow got one of these and that's, it. and the Gemara is going to explain this, right? Because every ship had this, right? Once the sailors forgot this thing on the seashore, and Rabbi Yekiva came and found it. But the idea is, is that he must've come to, uh, no, like own it or something like that. It's this story is a little bit unclear about what exactly happened. Then the next source for him is Umin Gabza from a treasure chest. Because once he gave four zoos to some soldiers, Amrlu and he said to them, Ati Limi Dam, bring me something in exchange for the money. I guess they were traveling somewhere and he's like, go buy me a souvenir. Okay. So I guess he doesn't mean a snow globe or something like that. And they found nothing except for a chest that they found washed up on the shore. They give it to him. Make use of this. And then they find out that it's filled with uh, gold coins. So again, these other two, the story of that thing from the ship and this one is that this is sort of like found wealth that Rabbi Akiva comes by. And then again, the Gemara wants to explain how did it come to be filled with these gold coins? Because it happened to be that that ship, right, it belonged to, to Arabian traders. It sank. 
right? And all the business profits that they had made, all you know, any on the many any money they made was put in that chest. And the chest was lost until it was found by those sailors. So in other words, it was a chest that had a lot of money in it, and he then got that money. The fourth one is Umin Matronita, right? Got it from a certain uh, noble woman, right? Um, and here we're going to get into a little Roman history here. Um, uh, the fifth one is Umini Shel. Um, in Hebrew, we say Turnus Rufus, right? But it's Turnus Rufus, who was basically the Roman governor of Israel during uh, Hadrian, right? When Hadrian was the emperor, he eventually orders the execution of Rabbi Akiva, okay? Um, but uh, but he became wealthy from his wife, Umin Kita Bar Shalom, and from Kita Bar uh, Shalom. Now, it's interesting, the Gemara here does not explain uh, in this place sort of, uh, you know, what what are the stories uh, with these with these two? So the story with Turnus Rufus and his wife, um, you can see, uh, it, we see Turnus Rufus interact with Rabbi Akiva in a few Gemaras and Baba Batran and Sanhedrin. Um, he like tries to argue with him, but in some of those Gemaras, what it talks about is eventually his wife uh, converts um, and then actually marries uh, Rabbi Akiva. That, that's what one of the stories is, which is very interesting. Um so, uh, you know, so he gets money from that marriage, supposedly, though it's interesting here. It doesn't say anything explicit about that. And then this Kita Bar Shalom was also a Roman nobleman um, who, um, uh, and there's a, again, there's there's a story that's brought uh, in uh, in the Toast Vote in Avodah Zara, uh, where there's a whole exchange uh, between the two of them. So, uh, so just you look in the Gemara in Avodah Zara uh, that talks about this interaction that they have. The Tosfot elaborates on it a little bit more. Um, but again, it's so uh, it, this passage is great for a variety of reasons. One is we get a lot of more interesting information. Yakiba, it's a parallel story. Uh, some of it is explained better um, uh, than, uh, you know, in other words, they, the backstory to some of this. In some, in some of these, you know, when they list the six of where he became wealthy and they don't in others, which I think is very interesting. And so I think what becomes difficult with these type of Gemaras is, is that it sort of assumes everybody knows everything. But maybe these were sort of very, very uh, common stories, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that people knew a little bit more uh, of the background about. But again, just to go back to this idea about, um, you know, why does the story appear uh, both in Ketubot and then also, you know, we have more information about R Rabbi Akiva, uh, you know, here is, again, it, it comes up in very, very different contexts, right? So in Ketubot, it's talking about what a husband is obligated to his wife, the frequency of conjugal uh, relations. Uh, it's much more in the context of like a marriage. And here it's in the context of Nadarim. And so I think each story gets tweaked a little bit to serve its purpose in the particular Masachat. I think that's well said. I think also, you know, keep in mind some of these stories here, not all the details about how he became wealthy, but certainly the earlier stories about the relationship with Rachel and the relationship with the father-in-law, like these are some of the most very famous stories, you know, in Shas about Rebbe Kiva. He's a 
he's a real figure, you know, very prominent figure that people who don't sit and learn Gemara and certainly don't sit and learn Dafyomi know these stories. Right. But I think it's always important to look at the stories themselves because I find often it's like we know, but when you really open the text, you see that the story is generally much richer than what you were sort of told of the storybook version as a child. Um, and there's, you know, much more to it. And even understanding that the story appears in different versions in different contexts is an important piece about that story. Uh, agreed 100%. Okay, I'm starting towards the top of Ahmed Bet. We have another famous story. Amr Leibat Kesar Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania, the, the daughter of the emperor, of Caesar, said to Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania, it's really very polite of her. Torah mufora bechli muhuar. Right, this this Torah, meaning the Torah that he teaches, the Torah that he uh, can expound upon, is glorious. And, and the kli, meaning the vessel that houses that Torah, is ugly. Meaning you, Rabbi Yeshua ben Chanania, are an ugly man, despite or you know, together with the fact that you have all this glorious Torah. Amarla. So he's not, you know, short for words. He says back to her, He says, well, what do you keep your wine in, in your father's house? Meaning your father, the Caesar, right? Where do you keep your wine? So she says, we keep the wine in earthenware vessels, right? Meaning in clay, clay bottles. Amarla, kule alma bachpachra, he says, how can it be that everybody in the world, right, stores their wine in, in clay and earthenware, and you also, you know, keep your wine in earthenware. Really, you, meaning you, the family of the Caesar, should be keeping your wine in vessels that are made of silver and gold. So you can imagine what happens. She goes and she puts, in fact, she puts the wine in vessels of silver and gold. And if you understand anything about oxidation, right, what's going to happen is usri. It goes bad, right? The wine goes bad. He says the Torah also, meaning the implications of the Torah will go bad if you put it in a handsome, good-looking person as opposed to, you know, his ugly self. Vaika Shapirin Vigamirin. And so she says, but aren't there people who are good looking who are also learned in Torah? Meaning, and it's a fair point she makes, right? Meaning he is accurate in saying that the external appearance of the person who is the repository of Torah does not have to be good looking. But to say that if you are good looking, you cannot be a repository of good Torah does not make sense either. Amarla, Ihavu Snu, Havu Gamirin's Fei. So he says to her, if they were ugly, they would be even more learned, which I think is such a, I'm sorry for laughing, but it just seems like such a, it's a sour grapes kind of line. It's a put her in her place kind of line. I, I don't think that we need to take this as a, a serious statement about the Torah of somebody who happens to be very good looking, but I appreciate where he's coming from. You know, she the story goes that this is the beginning of their conversation. I have to assume that there was already you know, preliminary conversation where she's where he actually does teach Torah and it's glorious or, you know, some such. Right. But still, it's kind of like she's been very much in his face about his appearance. So then to say uh, that somebody else to say that somebody if somebody good looking were not good looking, they would know their Torah would be even better. I feel like he's kind of earned that. 
So then a woman comes before, this is like a, it's presented as a completely separate story. A woman comes before Rabbi Huda in the Harda'a for judgment, meaning to the court. And in fact, she's found to be guilty, whatever the case was. And we're not really told what the case is. It seems irrelevant at this point. So she says to him, to Rabbi Yehuda, would Shmuel, who is your teacher, would he have judged me in the same way? And so she says, do you know him? Meaning, do you know Shmuel, my teacher? <laughs> Again, it seems like a little bit of a sidebar. Instead, uh, you know, let's play Jewish geography instead of asking, instead of answering the question. Yes, she does know him. So she she says, and this is where the connection comes, of course, she identifies the, you know, what Shmuel, who Shmuel was by his appearance. He was short and he had a belly. Ukam Vrabashine, he was dark, his teeth were large. So he says, Yehuda says to, to this woman, did you come here to mock him, to, to put him down? So he then says, let that woman go. I mean, he's talking, I guess, to the court, right? Put her in a state, put her in Bishmata, um, but in excommunication, right? And then, so now he's excommunicated her. And the Gemara concludes the story by saying her belly split open and she died. And the implication being that this is a punishment because of the way she spoke about Shmuel. Now, this again seems like to be. It's one thing to say that so-and-so was not good-looking or even to describe somebody in unflattering terms. The fact that Rav Yehuda um, excommunicates her seems pretty harsh. And then the fact that she goes through this like pretty graphic and unpleasant death of her belly splitting open and dying seems, I don't know, it just seems a little bit much. On the other hand, the Gemara doesn't say anything more about this. Like that's the end of the story. Maybe we have a parallel text somewhere, but I don't, at least in this version of the, in this, my edition, I don't have any note telling me, yes, indeed, there's a parallel text that will come to it some later time. Um, it is probably worth checking into that. The Gemara goes on to talk about Shmuel. You, Dana, you wanted to talk a little bit about Yeah, well, just about this story. I, I, just about this particular story. I've always wondered if, you know, was this an actual story or is this sort of, a, you know, some type of... Uh, allegorical story to talk about the conflict between Rome and Judaism, right? That, oh, I think, yeah, I mean, like, I, really I think that's really part of it. Like, Rome looks beautiful, but it isn't really beautiful. Ju Judaism right. is beautiful. Judaism will ultimately prevail. All that beauty ends up literally bursting itself open. So I think that even if there was an actual physical story, it is presented in the Gemara, meaning it's not, no, no accident that as much as these stories kind of are loosely hung together, we go through Rabbi Kiva in Rome, getting wealthy from Rome, right? To the story of a Roman woman talking to Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania, talking to, then we've got another Roman woman talking to, uh, I'm sorry, right, in the context of beauty and the, the story of Rabbi Yehuda talking about Shmuel, even if they all happened, we know, like we, the reader, get the message. Yeah. Uh, no, I, 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 right. I think it's just, but it's interesting to see that it also comes right after the story with Rabbi Akiva and some hinting of like interaction with him in Rome. I don't like the placement here is also interesting. I'm not completely clear 
why it comes up. You know, is it to say because Rabbi Akiva, there's another story that's in between there, but is it because Rabbi Akiva becomes wealthy from some Romans? I, I, I'm not told. And so almost in a way you want to be like, but don't like Rome too much. Um, well, it, that's, that's why I'm inclined story. to think that something did happen that makes for the story. But now we're going to line up these stories on the DAF to convey like this kind of object lesson about paying too much attention to beauty or too much disparagement of the vessels of Torah or et cetera. Um, right. So just to wrap up, there's a great story on uh, about Shmuel, right? So we know Shmuel was one of the sages of Naharda and uh, he, we had this phrase in the Mishnah of a Beitza Tormita. And so Shmuel basically explains what it is. And it's essentially a type of, diagnostic, you know, tools, I guess the way that you would describe it, which was that you would basically prepare this type of egg uh, by putting it, it says a thousand times in hot water, then a thousand times in cold water, it basically would somehow shrink. And then you would swallow it. And then how you basically, you know, pooped it out would tell you something about what was happening inside somebody's intestines. So, you know, I, I thought medically, this was like a very interesting passage. Uh, just pay some attention to it. And then it says, you know, based on its appearance, uh, then the doctor would know what medicine that you would actually need. So, you know, you mentioned yesterday, Anne, during that whole discussion about food, that there was sort of a certain sophistication about understanding of how food impacts our physical health. And here, I think, again, we see something like a little sophisticated in terms of, you know, Babylonian medicine. Yeah, I think they knew more than we in our arrogance think they did. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about your, this DAP and our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.